Right. A lot of people, what they do is when they feel they need more air, will switch out of the diaphragm if they're diaphragmatic breathers and move into the chest trying to expand and so on. And that in many people will trigger air hunger itself because as soon as you do it, you feel restricted because you have all this bone structure here. And people will get air hunger when they try to ventilate here. So as they move from the easy place to breathe to the difficult place to breathe, they get a, a self-fulfilling prophecy or yell, I'm, I, I need more air because they feel that air hunger. And then they try even more, they lose more carbon dioxide. They start getting lightheaded. They start getting dizzy. They start getting tetany in their muscles. They can't function. They're falling behind. They lose, they lose the race. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pakulski, and today we're going to dive really deep into breathing. Why breathing? Well, breathing, I think, is the single greatest performance aid that most people are overlooking. When most people talk about optimization of performance, hey, I want to work harder today, I want an edge, they go for stimulants, they go for steroids, they go for you name it, it's probably not breathing. In my humble opinion, I think that breathing is the single greatest opportunity that most people are not taking advantage of. So even still at the highest level of human performance, whether it be pro sports, MMA, boxing, you name it, an incredibly small percentage of people are leveraging the benefits of breathing. Now, we all breathe 22,000 times a day on average. How you breathe mechanically massively implicates into how you move. How you breathe from, from a cadence perspective massively implicates in your ability to be focused and your ability to uh, ultimately be, to take things beyond what you currently are, to focus at a depth. How you breathe massively implicates in your energy production, your energy output, and so much more. Your arousal states, your ability to be uh, heightened as far as arousal, your ability to be calm as far as arousal. All of these things and so many more are built in to breathing. They're built into the breathing process. And today's guest, Dr. Peter Litchfield, is the number one researcher in the world when it comes to breathing. Many guys that I've had on the podcast before who are incredibly brilliant are reading the research and reporting the research or reading the research, applying the research in their life and their scope of practice and their level of performance, and then giving you their feedback, giving you a combination of the research and their application. Dr. Peter Litchfield is in the lab. He's in his 80s. He's been studying this for an incredibly long time from a perspective of psychophysiology, respiratory physiology. And he is, in my opinion, the horse's mouth. When we talk about research, when I pick up a research paper, Dr. Peter Litchfield's name is on it. I've read so many things by Dr. Litchfield. And every time I read it, I seem to come away with a new degree of clarity as to what exists. I highly suggest you guys get out a paper and a pen and take some notes because Dr. Peter Litchfield is about to enlighten you, enlighten us with a lot of incredibly valuable insight into how to breathe to maximize not only performance, but mental acuity and ultimately, we think, longevity, right? So if we can optimize your ability to uh, breathe, you reduce stress can optimize your ability to breathe, you can increase performance and so much more. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you the amazing Dr. Peter Litchfield. 
Ladies and gents, right before we get into this podcast, I want to talk to you a little bit about a challenge that I've been experiencing lately. I've been waking up a little bit stiff. I've been waking up feeling like my body's a little achy. I'm like, gosh, am I getting old? What's happening? I almost feel like the Tin Man when I wake up. My muscles feel tight. I feel like my joints are a little bit achy. And I'm, I wasn't sure why. And so if I'm being honest, I've been neglecting certain aspects of my supplement regime. And I didn't realize how just truly vital they were to my well-being. For the last three days, I've reintroduced this one specific supplement that's literally opened me up. I woke up this morning, and I'm not exaggerating, dancing because my body felt so free. My body felt so loose. I felt like I had rewound the clock by 20 years. In my mind, originally, I was like, gosh, maybe this is like I'm getting old. Maybe it's sitting in. I'm like, what's going on? I wake up, and I can't even move my shoulder or my hips. I'm like, this doesn't feel right. And then I realized, but I haven't been taking my magnesium. I know you guys have heard about magnesium countless times before, but the value that I've experienced just in the last couple of days by reintroducing a healthy dose of magnesium into my life and the right type of magnesium into my life is nothing short of remarkable. My brain feels better. My daily activities feel like less of a chore. And even my training just feels like I'm able to be loose and free and crush it like I know that I can. I hated going into the gym for the last few weeks because it would hurt. My muscles would hurt, my joints would ache, and I felt like I, would, I felt like literally the Tin Man trying to get my hands above my head. As soon as I reintroduced my typical healthy dose of magnesium breakthrough into my life, everything opened up. And I, if you're someone who's experiencing any of these symptoms around muscle soreness, or if you're someone who trains hard, or if you're stressed on a consistent basis, and you're not taking an incredibly highly available source of magnesium, I promise you're missing out on an opportunity for your brain to work more effectively, for your muscles to work more effectively, to calm down your nervous system, to give you more regenerative sleep. Head over to magbreakthrough.com slash muscle intelligence to get hooked up with 10% off your order from our amazing friends over at Bioptimizers. Once again, that's magbreakthrough.com slash muscle intelligence and use the code MUSCLE10 on any order of all of their incredible sweet products to benefit from this incredible product and this incredible offer. Thank you to Mag Breakthroughs. Thank you for being here. Enjoy the podcast. You're extremely famous for this, the statement that breathing is behavior. And I, I don't think most of our audience would have any idea what that means. And I'd love to start there. If you could just kind of describe and define what you mean when you say breathing is behavior. Well, first of all, let's just look at what behavior is from a general perspective. It's basically a physiological action of some kind. Like uh, you can look at, for example, insulin production as a behavior or the beating of the heart as a behavior. There are lots of studies, for example, with chick embryos where they're trained to beat uh, basically in different kinds of cardiovascular behavior based on the outcome of what they do. For example, there's a whole series of studies done on where chickens uh, essentially raise their heart rate and lower their heart rate based on temperature. So that if they're cold and you require that they raise uh, the heart rate uh, in exchange for a change in temperature, they learn to do that. They, what they do is they learn to self-incubate. So uh, heart rate becomes a behavior. That is, there's something that triggers it, and there's some kind of outcome that then sustains it. 
I mean, I, I could give you examples of those yeah. kinds of studies. They're fascinating. And basically, physiology itself is behavior. Any physiological action is potentially modifiable by virtue of experience. That is, what my field is behavioral physiology, and we look at physiology as a learning system that it collects data and it uses that data. It stores the data, it reconfigures the data, it does things with the data. And that makes physiology psychological from our perspective, because the way to understand what it's doing, you have to understand its history, not just its anatomy. Effectively, it's a, it's a learned trait. So I can experience a stress, I get some physiological response to that stress, and then I learn that that physiological response becomes habitual moving forward? Well, you know, you have to look at when something becomes habitual, why, why does it continue to be habitual? Why does it happen over and over and over again? And very often it's because there is a payoff. There's an outcome that sustains it. And if you're going to address it, and if it's a, if it's a problem, and you want to help someone through that problem, then you have to discover what it is that's sustaining it. What are the outcomes that are keeping it in place? And then you have to alter those outcomes so that the behavior changes. Either that or you have to teach, you have to learn a new physiological response that will replace the previous one because it has a higher payoff than the other one. So it's all about, you know, an action and the outcome of that action and then how that outcome then will sustain that behavior perhaps for the rest of the life of the organism. You know, it's it's very, very, it's all very physiological, but it is psychophysiological in the sense that it involves learning and you're talking about an action that's being governed by some kind of trigger and some kind of outcome. That's loose for that. I'd love to take this and kind of make it applicable for the audience. So one of the things that I run into often is trying to teach people how to breathe in, say, an exercise environment or, say, in a running environment. And we know that misguided uh, breathing physiology in those places can definitely hinder performance. And so if you if you had someone who was over-breathing in running or over-breathing in an exercise environment where they're trying to perform a specific skill, would you mind walking us through what your thought process might be to start to change that behavior to one that was conducive to um, maybe being more apt in, in driving performance? Well, that, that is a, seems like a simple question. But it really breaks down into many questions, and there are all sorts of considerations in answering that what seems like a simple question. Now, you said over-breathing, so the first thing we want to do is to define what that is. What is over-breathing, and what's wrong with over-breathing? And over-breathing, would you like me to describe that briefly? Yeah. Uh, over-breathing doesn't mean that you're getting too much oxygen like a lot of people think. Over-breathing means that you're overdoing the, the job. That is, you're dumping out too much carbon dioxide out of the system. Most people don't understand that carbon dioxide is fundamental to health. It's not a poisonous substance. It's a requisite substance. It's a required substance. Without it, you would die. We use carbon dioxide to regulate the pH of the extracellular fluids in our body, specifically plasma, interstitial fluids, which are the fluids that surround all the cells in the body. 
the cerebrospinal fluid and the lymph fluid. And we regulate the pH of these fluids literally from breath to breath. And there are mechanisms, there are reflex mechanisms that govern that. And they regulate that pH on information that they receive from uh, inputs from the arterial system about the pH as well as about carbon dioxide concentration and oxygen concentration. And then the fluids in the brain also, there are receptor sites that are very sensitive to the pH level, and it regulates the breathing accordingly. And it keeps it exactly in place at all times, unless you get in the way of it. So if you have a habit where you start to ventilate too much, and you give off that carbon dioxide, then you start moving into what's called respiratory alkalosis. You're too alkaline in those fluids. And you get all kinds of radical physiological changes with all kinds of deficits and symptoms that come from that, which are usually identified with something else, not the breathing. They blame it on something else, like stress or anxiety or my diet, or they blame it on something else. They have no idea that the breathing is mediating. So the over-breathing is where you're dumping out too much of that carbon dioxide that you need to regulate properly. Now, that's a behavior. I am taking larger breaths. I'm breathing too fast. Okay, that, that's behavior. And that behavior has consequences in this case. Uh, it leads to radical kinds of symptoms, which can land you in a 911 ambulance. You know, about 60% of the ambulance runs in the large cities in this country are based on symptoms generated by that kind of breathing. What do we do about this? This is, a, this is what you're asking. What do we do about this over-breathing behavior? Well, first of all, we have to do what we call is a breathing behavior analysis to find out what's going on. What's triggering that over-breathing behavior? Most people don't over-breathe all day long, all the time. It's not as if a bad habit is usually there all day long. It shows up at specific times, specific places. There are specific triggers that bring it on. So we want to identify those. And one of those triggers can be exercise. That as soon as someone decides that they need to perform better or to perform well, they're running, uh, doesn't matter what they're doing, whatever kind of uh, sport they're doing, and, and that knowledge in itself and that the, starting to initiate the activity can actually trigger a dysfunctional habit. So a person may be breathing great up until the point that they start to run or they start to swim or whatever it is, and they start to overventilate and they move into respiratory alkalosis. It might sound funny. How can you overbreathe when you're doing an exercise? Well, you can. What you, the, the issue in exercise is really the heart. You don't really run out of breath. You don't really get out of breath, really. What you get out of is blood. For every liter of blood that I can move through my system, I can move 20 liters of air. And I only need one liter of air for every liter of blood. So I can over-breathe very easily while I'm running or whatever, whatever I'm doing. It's easy to do. Now, why would someone do that? Why would when there's a trigger, that is, they're going to start 
a particular sport and now they breathe in a way where they lose carbon dioxide, they suffer with respiratory alkalosis, you know, you get an immediate deficit in performance that will come from that. Well, what's that about? Well, for one thing, people, when they, there are belief systems to start where they believe that, you know, more oxygen is good and they need to breathe more air. And maybe they consciously initiate it and they get into trouble right away. They start compromising themselves immediately as soon as they do that. Unless you're doing something unusual, like you're a diver and you're trying to go down into the sea as long as you can stay or something like that. Uh, you know, there are different you know, uses of breathing in that sense without going into that. So um, the person uh, may feel that they need more air to be able to perform better. And that's based on a, a faulty belief system about what breathing is about. But usually a breathing habit is unconscious. Person is totally unaware of it. And here is an example. This is a woman I work with who's uh, very well known in the physiotherapy community worldwide, taught everywhere. And we went and we did a workshop for her and her staff. She's Canadian, actually. And uh, she's from the Vancouver area. And um, she, when I, w we were halfway through the course, she said, you know, Peter, I think that I've got a breathing issue. And she's been teaching breathing to her patients for years and you know, people on her staff working with people with breathing issues and so on, but that she volunteers. I think I have a breathing issue. And she says, I've been a national gymnast for a long time in my life, and I've competed a lot uh, in very competitive situations. But during the past six months, I haven't been able to even go for long hikes. I can't, I can't function. I can't do anything physically. I feel air hunger. I feel restricted. I was out on a hike in Australia and I got out and I couldn't get back. I was just so, there was so much air hunger. I couldn't function and people had to help me back. I'm an athlete. I couldn't get back, she said. So I said, I, I think I have a problem. I've gained 20 kilos and I, this is horrific. I've gained all this weight and so on. And I said, well, let's take a look at your, at your breathing. So we looked at her breathing. She wasn't over-breathing at all. She was like, her breathing was perfect. She's breathing in the diaphragm, nice, slow breathing. Was, well, breathing looked great. She was fine. I asked her, do you feel air hunger? She says, no, I feel fine. And I said, okay, well, let's do some exercise. Let's get you on your exercise bike over here, and let's see how you do. Now, what I was doing, I was monitoring her carbon dioxide level. And her carbon dioxide levels were absolutely perfect. And just to give you some numbers without explaining them, good is 35 to 45 without really specifying what that means. It's really uh, concentrate. It's a measurement of the concentration of carbon dioxide. And she was in the low 40s. That's fantastic. If you're over 45, that means you're underventilating. You're, you know, you're too much carbon dioxide is accumulating in the system. If you're below 35, that means that you you're losing too much carbon dioxide. You're moving into respiratory alkalosis. You're over-breathing. So here she is. She's in the low 40s. She's great. She gets on the bicycle. She has one of her assistants there uh, working with her. And she starts pedaling on the bike. Uh, and her CO2 levels are perfect. And then her assistant calls out and says, hey, you know, you're not, you're not doing anything. You're not 
exercising. You're just moving your legs. So she turns up the work level on the bike, and then she starts to work. CO2 levels are fine. Okay. And then they turn it up a little bit higher. And, and now she's having to really push the pedals. And after about a minute and a half, she says, what's my CO2 level? Because, you know, she's been learning about that in the class. She says, what is my CO2 level? And the woman calls out 22. She's in a severely what we call hypocapnic state. Her CO2 levels have dropped radically. And she, and she feels this terrific air hunger, can't function. She becomes terrified. She's afraid she can't breathe. She quits right on the spot. So what she did in this particular case, it's that working hard that is a trigger for this behavior where she took over the breathing, where she could feel in control. She, people, when they do that, often feel in control. So she'd taken over that breathing and it reduced anxiety about air and it gave her a sense of control, but she went into this low CO2 state that immediately triggered all these wild symptoms and she had to stop on the spot. We had to help her off the bike. You know, it was a major issue. Now, the trigger is when she feels there's effort and she feels she has to really work hard, that is the trigger. That's when she takes over. And when she takes over, she gets into trouble. So what did we do? What did we do with her? Well, she, she learned that that's what she did. She could see that's what she was doing. So what we did is we worked with her to have her practice overventilating on purpose. This is called negative practice. Overventilating on purpose. And then when she got a little bit into hypocapnia or lower level of CO2 and she could feel these symptoms coming on, then she would go back to where she started. She could back out. And so she would go in further, back out, go in further, back out until she was able to overbreathe as she got all these symptoms that she's been dealing with. And then she could back out of it. And when she could back out of it, she lost her fear of it. And she it became her breathing. She was no longer a victim of this over-breathing, but she owned that over-breathing. That was hers now. That habit was hers, and she could engage it or disengage it. And by disengaging, and of course, the symptoms go away, so she no longer worried about it when she started to do the exercise, because when she got into it, she knew she could get out as soon as she started to slip into it. So what, what it sounds like, Dr. Lloydsfield, is that she was mentally able to uncouple the physiological feeling and the breath rate. So she simply trained herself to, even though she felt physiologically challenged from the increased exercise, she was able to still re- retain, you know, a, a, maybe a slower breath cadence or a more controlled breath cadence to be able to retain some more CO2. Yeah, ba- basically, she was, in a sense, a victim of this habit of hers, not understanding that she was even doing it. She had no idea she was overventilating. All she knew were the symptoms. And what most people do when they go into it, they get trapped. And they can't get out. And they keep struggling trying to get more air. And they stay there for hours at a time. 
I think most people have a learned behavior that says exercise that is challenging to me requires increased respiration, mm-hmm. right? Like, right. That would be most people's innate response. I'm walking up these stairs, I'm riding this bike, I'm climbing this mountain. Therefore, I'm going to have increased respiration. But what you're saying is, if we can become conscious of, of maybe not going into that depth of, or that, that, that increased rate of respiration, we could avoid the, the feeling of panic, overwhelm, and, and potentially um, stress simply by controlling the amount of CO2 in and out. Right. A lot of people, what they do is when they feel they need more air, will switch out of the diaphragm if they're diaphragmatic breathers and move into the chest trying to expand and so on. And that in many people will trigger air hunger itself because as soon as you do it, you feel restricted because you have all this bone structure here. And people will get air hunger when they try to ventilate here. So as they move from the easy place to breathe to the difficult place to breathe, they get a, a self-fulfilling prophecy where, yeah, I'm, I, I need more air because they feel that air hunger. And then they try even more. They lose more carbon dioxide. They start getting lightheaded. They start getting dizzy. They start getting tetany in their muscles. They can't function. They're falling behind. They lose, they lose the race. They lose the race. All right. There's so much in there that you just said that I want to kind of go through, you know, a bunch of checklists. Um, so first you mentioned hypocapnia. I don't want to assume the audience know what this is. Hypo versus hypercapnia. If you could explain that and then how that's, you know, maybe a situation like um, hypocapnia creating tetnia, as you just mentioned, if you could draw a line there for us and, and have the audience understand kind of how something like hypocapnia would lead to something like tetnia. Okay. Well, hypocapnia simply means, as I mentioned earlier, it means carbon dioxide deficiency. It means respiratory alkalosis. It means your pH is too high in the fluids outside of the cells in the body. And the breathing is regulating this literally from breath to breath. It's extremely precise in the way it regulates that. And when it gets out of whack for whatever reason, or an organic reason or because of a learned behavior, uh, you get all, I have a, there's a huge list of physiological changes that occur. And one of them, for example, uh, is that you get a severely reduced blood flow in the brain. And you can get uh, some uh, studies report up to a 60% reduction in blood flow to the brain. Other, piece, other areas of the literature talk about 50%, 40 to 50%, but it's been reported up to 60%. But I think in the literature in general, it's agreed it's about 50% loss of blood flow in the brain in the matter of a certain number of seconds, not two or three seconds, but in the matter of, of 20 to 30 seconds. And that will compromise you extremely because when that blood is reduced, that means you, you're suffering with hypoxia. You don't have adequate oxygen to the brain. You don't have adequate blood sugar to the brain. You have all kinds of electrolyte changes that occur. You get acidosis in the cells and the neurons in the brain. They're, they're moving into lactic acidosis, not because of the exercise, but because of the way you're breathing. And now you're compromising the whole neurophysiological system as an example. And if you're doing a sport where you have to rehearse, you can't focus anymore. Uh, if there's any kind of emotion in the situation, it'll exacerbate the hell out of the emotion. But it doesn't just affect the brain. It affects the heart. You get coronary constriction. You get significant coronary constriction 
when you breathe that way. While you're running, you get coronary constriction. Is that what you want? You know, and you get tetany in muscles because you get oxygen deficit in muscles and you get tetany. And, um, you know, it's a, tetany is a very common thing. Neurologists see people come in, they come in all the time with symptoms of tetany and many neurologists will just turn them away, turn them away because basically there's nothing they can do. It's really a behavioral issue. That's not their expertise. There's nothing physiologically wrong. It has to do with how the person is breathing. Now, if you were to breathe this way and didn't know you were breathing that way, if you get a, a 50% reduction of blood flow to the brain and you get all these symptoms like anxiety or anger that it can trigger, these emotions that can trigger, you can't focus on anything, you can't remember what you're doing, then what are you going to attribute to? You, generally, you're not going to attribute it to your breathing. You're going to blame something else. Oh, it's, my, it's stress that's doing this to me. No, it's the way you're breathing that's doing it to you. It's compromising the hell out of your physiology. So this overbreathing phenomenon of intentionally or or, other, or unintentionally, I guess, off-gassing CO2 sounds like it has this whole slew of potentially negative implications. And as you know, it's become very common and very popular to intentionally induce hypocapnia for periods of either short duration for some well, I don't want to speculate why. Can you walk us through um, maybe the potential downsides of that? And if you think there's any potential benefit, because I mean, I'm not going to name who's doing it. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of people doing it. You see, what we, what we do in our work is we focus on breathing habits that people have learned. And they're generally learned unconsciously. And those habits can be learned as a meditator. Those bad habits can be learned as a yoga person. Those bad habits can be learned as a function of your coach in athletics because she, she doesn't know what they're talking about when it comes to the physiology of things. It can come from those kinds of things, but it also comes from endless things. Like uh, I remember I worked with an athlete who was a, a, a track star at UCLA, and he had surgery on his ankle, and he came out of uh, – general anesthesia with real serious problems breathing. You know, he had to stumble out of it. And so he developed a phobia that was embedded in his breath, basically. So you, I mean, you can learn it coming out of surgery. You can, wear, you can learn it by wearing a mask. You get lots of people with COVID masks who have learned dysfunctional breathing habits. They put the damn mask on and what do they experience? Air hunger. Not everybody. A lot of people get air hunger when they put on a mask. A lot of people don't. You put on a mask, they get air hunger. What are they going to do? They take more air. And what do they do? They go into hypocapnia. And there's a CO2 deficit. And what comes from that? Symptoms. What do they blame the symptoms on? Maybe the COVID they have. Maybe on other things, but they don't blame it on the breathing. They think that taking those larger breaths were, was helpful. This is how these things are learned. Okay, so our, our work is on, you know, has this person learned a dysfunctional habit? Under what circumstances does it show up? What's sustaining it? What's keeping it in place? What's the history of it? What symptoms is it responsible for? How does it retard? How does it um, reduce efficiency physically? How does it have an impact on performance at large, whether it's public speaking or whether it's, you know, diving off a diving board? You know, how does it affect performance? How does it affect health? How does it affect these different things, these habits in that person? Every habit has a specific history for that particular person. Now, most people do breathing work 
what they do is they manipulate breathing in the name of some kind of goal. That's what you're getting to. We look at how people breathe in general and how they breathe to specific triggers and how that gets them into trouble. So when you manipulate the breathing and you get in the habit of manipulating breathing, that also is a good foundation for learning a dysfunctional habit because you come to believe that you need to do the breathing properly or it's not going to happen. A lot of people breathe, believe they have to do the breathing or somehow they have to learn to breathe optimally. That's simply false. Do you think that we evolved through all this time, you know, all these, through the, the evolution of all these creatures that we actually have to learn to breathe properly? I mean, the system is set up to run beautifully without your getting in its way, which is what you tend to do with all these belief systems. Now, you can take the breathing because it has such profound effects on physiology and you can use it in all kinds of ways. And one way is to create an altered state. Very much, I come from a 60s tradition. I'm 81. And I, I come from the 60s and you know we were all doing acid and all these different things at that time years ago, okay? You know, and altered, you know, you learn, you know, a lot can be learned through um, changing states. Learn about yourself, learn about the world, learn about different things. And Stan Groff, for example, the physician who does holotropic breathing, I mean, basically for him, that was a replacement for LSD. So why is it a replacement? It's because it dissociates. When you overventilate, you dissociate. All that reduction in blood flow and a lot of people, for example, some people when they overbreathe have a panic attack. Other people when they overbreathe feel like this. Hey, this is cool. I love this. Okay, because getting dizzy and disoriented, some people love it. Other people are terrified of it. Okay. And so if you do this in a guided way where you lead a person into it, it can trigger all kinds of memories, all kinds of emotions, all kinds of different senses of yourself, because it, it's like an, an alter, it's an altered state. And it, it can lead to negative outcomes, it can lead to positive outcomes, and it can be guided or not guided. Okay. And so you can use it as a tool. Um, and, and some people, for example, people with uh, traumatic uh, Stress syndrome, for example, post-traumatic stress syndrome, you know, they, they can, when they overventilate, which is very common in them, they dissociate and they then disconnect from the bad memories. They can actually disconnect from things and stay dissociated. And when you work them into good breathing, they start to panic. And so you work them back, you know, they go back to where they were. So you can use it as a tool and people do it unconsciously where they use it as a tool to regulate their feelings, or you can do it consciously in some group format, working with someone who knows what they're doing, introducing it, like going on an ayahuasca trip or something, you go on a breathing trip. And so there's that kind of thing you do. But what's really important is that the people understand what they're doing and why it's happening and how they need to come out of that. Because when a lot of people can get trapped in it, they can't get out for hours. So they need, you, you need to know how to come out of it. You understand that this is just an experience that you, you've chosen to, to go through in the same way someone might have taken some therapeutic drug and is guided with you know, 
uh, ketamine or something, and you'll go some through some kind of guided uh, exploration of yourself using ketamine that's prescribed to you by a psychiatrist or something. Um, and there, there are all the precautions that you take. And it's the same thing with breathing. You want to take those precautions. You want people to be informed as to what's happening. And if someone has got coronary uh, heart uh, disease or someone has epileptic seizures, you never want to do that. You can trigger a seizure on the spot. You could trigger an angina attack because you're reducing blood flow to the coronaries. So you, you need to be careful what you're doing. So, Dr. Litchfield, um, flipping, flipping the script a little bit and talking on the other end. So that was hypocapnia, talking about the potential negative implications of hypocapnia. Now, if I were just to sit here, let's say I was riding a bicycle or going for a walk, and I would hold my breath, I'd you know, maybe exhale or not, and just hold my breath. At some point, I started developing, up, developing a desire to breathe. And obviously, it, or you could tell me if I'm wrong, but my, my interpretation is it's an accumulation of CO2. It's accumulating, it's accumulating, it's accumulating. At some point, I have a strong desire to respire, to breathe, and get the, the CO2 out. Um, one, could you just walk me through like what actually is happening there? What is the actual sensation I'm experiencing? And why can some people hold their breath for 10 seconds while other people can hold it for three minutes? What is the actual physiological difference between those things? And is there actually a performance benefit in being able to have this? You know, to, I'm not sure if this is the correct term in, in your words, but to have this improved CO2 tolerance. Well, you know, the whole word CO2 tolerance, uh, if my perspective is a mis it's misused because it really isn't about tolerance. You know, it's like, you know, there's a phenomenon called habituation. And that's a physiological thing. When you walk into a room where someone's baking bread, it smells fantastic, right? But you've been there for five minutes and you go, you can't seem to smell it anymore. That's habituation. Okay. And, you know, habituation can be good or it can be bad, depending on what you're up to. And um, it's a huge subject and there's a big literature on habituation. And so the idea is that you want the pH level to be correct in these extracellular fluids. And you want that to feel the right way. It's not about, oh, I'm going to build up tolerance to this bad thing called CO2. CO2 is good. It's not, you're not building up a tolerance. You're building up the joy of experiencing it. It's a positive thing. It's not that I'm tolerating it. You know, I'll just, I better tolerate it because tolerating is really good that I keep that CO2 in there. No, it feels good. And that's one of the main things in teaching people new kinds of breathing. They have to prefer the new kind of breathing. They have to like it more than they like these other kinds of breathing, or they're never, ever going to do it. If you want someone to breathe through the mouth, or through, I mean, rather through the nose rather than the mouth, they have to like breathing through the nose more than through the mouth. Because if they don't, they won't do it. Okay, so it's not about building up a tolerance, a willingness to sit there with the CO2. It's about building up, liking the level that the body requires for maintaining optimal respiration, optimal physiology. You, lo you love it. It's not tolerance. So if you, in fact, have gotten used to because you habituated, you've habituated to a lower level of CO2, 
now you may have to essentially engage an awareness of the experience of the, these higher levels of CO2 until you that new habituation has occurred. Because people generally don't prefer to have lower CO2s. They prefer the higher CO2s. You know, the preference, you want to have a preference for the right physiology, not the wrong physiology. Okay, so that always bothers me. People say, build, you know, learn to tolerate. It's not toleration. It's learning to like, learning to like it. Like you may dislike cheese, I, like I did as a kid, you know, and I learned to like it. I practiced it because it looked so good, but I didn't, I hated it. And after a while, after so many years, you know, I became a real fan. So you have to like it in essence. So is there no physiological adaptation that happens to the, the chronic exposure to elevated CO2, such as maybe uh, improved or increased sodium bicarbonate secretion? So I, I've heard some conversations around like, hey, there's actually some release of sodium bicarbonate to help neutralize um, pH. But what happens is that if you overventilate continuously for a period of time, like days, what will happen is the body won't stand for that. Let's just talk about it, uh, you know, anthropomorphically. Okay, the, the body doesn't, won't stand for that. And uh, because the pH is essential, I mean, the, the correct Plasma pH, for example, is, is vital to the system. Now, of course, you can think of it that way, but then you can look at it straight, uh, you, know, you know, look at the science of it. And what you see is that, you see, carbon dioxide is required in the kidneys to return bicarbonates to the blood. Because when the blood is filtered, the bicarbonates get filtered out of the blood. And that, though that... Um, those bicarbonates go into a fluid called the filtrate in the nephrons of the kidney. And that carbon dioxide, that, that bicarbonate has to be restored to the blood. And to restore it to the blood, you need carbon dioxide. You can't get it back without carbon dioxide. And when you also lose carbon dioxide, excuse me, when you lose bicarbonates, like you buffer sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid, you buffer the acids that are created by eating proteins or lac, lac, most lactic acid is, is recovered. Otherwise, it's not peed out. But anyway, you, when you pee out those acids that have been buffered with bicarbonates, then you lose the bicarbonates and the kidneys make new bicarbonates. And guess what? You need carbon dioxide to do it. So if you've ventilated out your carbon dioxide or a lot of your carbon dioxide, the kidneys don't have adequate carbon dioxide to restore the bicarbonates properly to the system, nor can the kidneys create the same level of bicarbonates to, re to move into the system. And so you suffer with a bicarbonate deficiency. And meanwhile, the pH has gone back down to some extent. It's never fully compensated, but it will go downward again. Uh, and that is helpful from the standpoint of restoring pH. Uh, this is what happens, for example, if you become anaerobic in, a, in exercise. You'll start to overventilate as a reflex. You'll overventilate dumping carbon dioxide to slow down the effects of lactic acid. So as lactic acid is bringing on this acidosis that's going on, you're dumping more carbon dioxide than you would normally to try to slow that process from happening. 
And that's a reflex there. But you don't want to lose those bicarbonates. That long-term effect of dumping, you know, those bicarbonates disappearing because you're overventilating all the time, that means you don't have the bicarbonates when you need them. And it can be a, a factor in things like uh, chronic fatigue because you don't have the, the buffers to be able to handle the acids, the keto acids, the lactic acid, and so on that the body's creating just doing normal exercise, just walking around, and you run out of these bicarbonates, and then you start slipping into acidosis. So you don't want to lose those bicarbonates. The last thing on earth you want to do. And furthermore, it may correct the pH to some degree, but you also will suffer the effects of low CO2 itself. And one of those effects are that even though you've maybe moved the pH back towards a normal level, say in the blood, the hemoglobin, there isn't enough carbon dioxide in the red blood cells so that the hemoglobin becomes stingy and holds on to its oxygen and doesn't deliver it to the plasma as easily as it normally would so that now you get some hypoxia associated with stingy hemoglobin because you've got low CO2, even if the pH has been restored to some degree. So that's great. Thank you, Dr. Whitfield. So one thing that comes to mind is myself, as well as my audience, is aspiring for what we'll call high performance. And I've read one of your articles called Good Breathing, Bad Breathing. And I'd like to go into like, well, what defines good breathing? Is it, is it completely individualized? Or if you wanted to use breath as a high performance aid, right? Call it a performance enhancing aid. Um, is there some specific thought process or some specific knowledge you need, would need to have to directly apply that to using as, using a breath, breathing as a performance aid? Okay, well, first of all, the real key to learn is to allow a system to do its job, to allow the fundamental uh, innate intelligence, if you will, of the neurophysiology of breathing to operate so that it, it does its job um, efficiently and well. And that's really about um, learning, you know, when you're not in a challenging situation, you learn, as an example of many things, how minimal the breath is really in the final analysis. So you hardly have to breathe at all to get the um, oxygen you need. It's just, you hardly have to breathe at all. And if you practice that, where you can, you, you believe it and you experience it and you know that, then when you get into a fight-flight kind of a situation or into a challenging, let's call it, situation because uh, a lot of performance i mean it's not necessarily negative because it's just it's just very very high performance oriented and it it requires you know optimal physiology uh and so you want to go with the system now we call this the chemistry of respiration and then there's the mechanics of breathing and these are two different things and a lot of people when you talk about good breathing bad breathing people think of certain kinds of mechanics as being good breathing. And then they don't know anything about the respiratory thing. They just assume that what good breathing is, you know, is somehow good respiration. 
you know, and so they'll think what well, breathing slow is good, or, you know, you should breathe in diaphragm is good and all these things that are good. That's good breathing. You're in the diaphragm. Oh, that's bad breathing. You're breathing, you know, these very short aborted kinds of looking breaths that that's bad. And they identify everything with the mechanics without understanding its relationship to respiration itself. This is one of the big mistakes that you see people doing all the time. They come in with these techniques without understanding how it really relates to the respiration. So, you know, in a high performance situation, from my perspective, I, you know, uh, and I think of, you know, I've been an aviator for years. It's a big thing in my life is aviation. And um, I found my own airplanes for years. And, um, you know, it's, it's critical that you your respiration is right in place because of all the high-level focusing that you have to do. And, you know, and someone who flies an aircraft, you get in, you sit in the seat, you're going to fly in, you know, really challenging weather. You, I used to be at San Francisco International. You come in there where I kept my airplane, you have all this challenge, all these other airplanes, all the controllers, you know, the turbulence that's going on is a rainstorm there. They're throwing all these clearances at you. You have to be right on top of it. You have to get right back to the controller. You have to know exactly what to do. You know, all these different things. You know, and the sympathetic nervous system is way up here. Okay. And I need to really be able to focus. My memory has to be, my short-term memory has to be very sharp. Very, very sharp. I have to be right on it. All my, you know, the coordination, my inner ear and my working with the instruments and so on. All the different things I have to be ready for in case I have to do a missed approach whatever it is, okay? And so I'm always conscious of my breathing and how minimal it is I can feel it going on its own in the lower part of my body. I don't need to use these other muscles. That'll get me into trouble, bring air hunger in, give me a sense of restriction. I feel how minimal, I just notice my breathing is so absolutely minimal. So I need so little air. And, I, and then that just noticing that is extremely helpful to me. I can see that my physiology is what I'm, it's doing what I would hope it was doing. Okay, so, and I, you know, we've been working with people in the special forces. We've been working with people like right now, the LA SWAT team police department is doing things that um, uh, the US military was doing. I'll give you one little example. They did a, um, uh, a test. Uh, you know, where they in the special forces, they will uh, do an assessment to determine who's likely to get through a program and who's not, you know, and so that's a critical thing. And about 4% of the people they thought would be good could get through the program, would actually get through, I mean, 4% of the total would get through the program, and that's it. And so they did some studies working with breathing, and they had one group where people were doing the usual kind of breathing stuff you hear about, um, focusing on breathing mechanics and so on. And then they did this other group uh, that where we addressed or they addressed the chemistry of the respiration and the CO2 level, coordinating the mechanics with the chemistry, that is the mechanics with the respiration. And then they had a group where they didn't do any breathing work. They just do what they normally did. And so in the normal group, you know, it was about 4% of the people got through. 
in the other breathing group, the one that was just focusing on good mechanics, this is hard to believe, but 0% got through. Hmm. And the one that where they were focusing on linking the mechanics with the respiration, 34% got through. Pretty dramatic. Pretty dramatic. Can you talk to me about what you mean when you say breathing mechanics? Because I hear a lot of people sure. talk about breathing mechanics, but I'm a movement guy. Like I, I study human movement a lot. And so few people actually integrate breathing mechanics the way I would look at it into actual into the actual breathing process, meaning its implication on the expansion and contraction of the rib cage, its implication on the spine, its implication on, on kind of pelvic orientation. Right. When I just talk right. about breathing mechanics, that's what I'm looking at. But I'm curious if you mean something different than that. Like it's just, just, just the use of the diaphragm? Well, no. Mechanics is the movement of what it takes to move air in and out of the lungs. Yep. All the muscles that are involved in that, you know, any factor uh, like breathing rate, the depth of the breath, breathing through the mouth, breathing through the nose, uh, you know, breathing rhythmically, dysrhythmically, you know, taking, you know, any aspect of what you would normally think of breathing is what the mechanics are about. The, you see, we think of there's three different sides or phases of the breathing. There's the, the mechanics which we call external respiration. There's the internal respiration is that once oxygen gets into the blood, what happens? It goes to the cells and it goes through a whole process to get there. And then there's carbon dioxide generated in the cells that then is that carbon dioxide arrives in the lungs. A certain part of it is excreted through the lungs and the other part of it is retained in the system. And it has the exact correct level of CO2 has to be retained in the lungs because when the air comes through, not the air, the blood comes through the pulmonary network and whatever CO2 is retained in the alveoli will dictate the carbon dioxide concentration of the blood that leaves the lungs. So if I have a high concentration of carbon dioxide in my lungs, the blood will leave with a high concentration of carbon dioxide. If I have a low concentration of carbon dioxide in my lungs because I've breathed it out with taking large breaths, then the blood is going to leave with a low concentration of carbon dioxide. So you need to maintain that correct level of carbon dioxide in the alveoli of the lungs at all times, at all times, no matter what you're doing, whether you're running and swimming or whether you're meditating or what, you need to keep that right level, which is the same level at all times, because it's that same level that corresponds to the correct pH in the blood. So you have to maintain that. Unless you're anaerobic and you're slipping into acidosis, sure, then you're going to dump up more carbon dioxide to try to slow that process down from happening. But the mechanics, which the external respiration is how these brain stem centers will dictate the rate and the depth of the breath in accordance with the pH requirements of the system. And, and so it will keep the level of CO2 at the, at the concentration at the correct point. So as the blood comes through, it, it, in essence, has the right pH. It also has the right oxygen concentration, right carbon dioxide concentration, and so on. But that's the job of these reflexes 
and operating through the lungs. Those are the mechanics of it. However, there are many other reasons why we breathe the way we do. And one of them is to talk, like I right now. I'm using air to create speech. It has nothing to do with respiration. And there are endless things that we do with breathing that have nothing to do with respiration. And the respiration, however, in the background needs to be correct. The, the mechanics need to serve that respiratory requirement no matter what else we're doing. Okay, and so those, the, the objectives of the breathing sometimes conflict. And so, you know, the respiratory system doesn't get what it wants uh, because of some other objective you have that gets the system into trouble. For example, you know, you can breathe very fast and have very good CO2 levels, have perfect respiration. You can be breathing very fast, have excellent respiration. Do 30 breaths per minute and have really good respiration. Hmm. You can be breathing at a, in a, you know, a real meditational level of, say, three, four breaths per minute and be overventilating horribly. Hmm. Have really bad, res- I mean, from a respiratory point of view, terrible, terrible. So that, that just confuses it, I think, for the listeners. So is there anything that I'm looking for short of getting a, a, you know external device to actually measure? Well, what you do, is, first of all, um, you know, it's, it's about the, the depth and the rate that multiply times each other to keep the minute volume where it should be, okay? And Which is of course, what? it's going to vary from breath to breath. Well, it depends on whether you're exercising or not or whether you're meditating, but, and it changes radically, but the CO2 concentration needs to be the same. Needs to be the same because that concentration is what dictates what the pH is and the need, the pH, the pH requirement doesn't change. It's still the same. So you've got to have that same CO2 level, whatever it takes to do it. And you're not going to learn to do it. There's no way. Your body knows how to do it. You don't know how, you don't have to learn how to do it. So what's, what's important, you know, if it gets out of whack because of your habits and what you've been doing, you learned, if you don't have an instrument, you have to learn what it feels like. You have to be aware of it. Okay, so that, for instance, a lot of people, they get, they're aware of different aspects of it. Like someone, I will feel a little lightheadedness. Like I get, as you can tell, I get very involved in what I'm talking about. You know, I get really enthusiastic, okay? And I get really going. And I can start to overventilate, and I can feel immediately in my temple here, right around in here, I feel a twinge. I feel mm. a, a lightheadedness coming on. And as soon as I notice it, within a minute, it's gone because I self-regulate. I don't do anything. I'm just aware of it. And the awareness itself becomes a trigger for allowing the breath. As soon as I'm aware of it, I end up allowing, and it just, it takes time. You can't get it back in one breath. If you're really severely hypercapnic, it could take you easily two or three minutes to get back. You just, you aren't going to get back the next breath. It's like a big barrel of water. If you dump it all out, it takes time to refill it. You know, if you dump it all out, it's going to take time for you to get the system normalized again. So the simple path to getting it back is simply to to retain CO2 on every, so not obviously over breathing on the way in and then trying to retain uh, CO2 on the way out with the really slow breath and then maybe a breath hold. Well, the, the best thing really, depending on what you're doing, I know if you're not, 
in a crisis where you need to get across the river. You know, you're sitting here, it's about allowing it and letting it happen on its own. And, and then when you do that, it becomes soothing because you realize that it's doing the job, that you trust the system. Very often people don't trust their system. They're actually afraid of their own breathing. They don't even want to focus on it. They don't want to go there. They feel fine as long as they don't focus on it. They have, in other words, they have kind of a phobia of their own breath, of their own experience of their own breath. They're phobic. And they, they don't want to experience it. Right. Okay. Maybe they so just the idea is, a panic attack yeah. or something or anxiety, and, and that's the association. Right. So the idea is to learn to experience it, to be there, to be aware of it, and be there for it, and to let it be the observer where you can, as a third party, watch it do its job. And when you do that, you can see how everything restores itself. If you can do it, most people aren't very good at it. They don't observe. They manipulate. As soon as they focus on their breathing, they're already manipulating it rather than really knowing how to observe it. So if you can observe and step away from it, a lot of the time it will just restore itself. Now, there are plenty of habits that are so unconscious, so embedded, even if you step away from it and observe it, what you're observing is a dysfunctional habit. So you could be yep. observing either a restoration by virtue of those reflex mechanisms doing their job, or you may be observing what you've learned. And one of those things you can, you can see that when you allow it, you can notice that the breath is being pushed out, that that's actually an unconscious behavior where they've learned to push it out. And they say, my God, I had no idea that I'm pushing the air out. I mean, who the hell needs to push air out? It'll go out by itself. And you have the person focus on it and they find out why. They focus on the feeling of it, the emotion in it, and they find out very frequently that the reason it's being pushed out is because they want to get it over with. They want to get it over with as quickly as possible. And they never knew that. They had no idea they were doing that. And they're doing that all the time. And associated with that, they often have air hunger, this pushing that's in there. So there's some very simple things you can learn, which you know we can't go into now, but very simple things you can learn to try to get the, the alignment of your mechanics with the chemistry of the situation. The chemistry being the fundamental respiratory process. That makes a lot of sense. Now, this may add a whole level of complexity to the to the conversation, but how does cardiovascular fitness slash aerobic anaerobic fitness overlap with this? So someone who's of poor cardiovascular fitness compared to someone who has relatively high functioning cardiovascular fitness, how does that play into someone's ability to regulate um, pH ultimately? Well, you know, it's it's it's, it's, it's irrelevant in the, in the mm. one hand. If you're allowing the system, it's going to do what it needs to do to put it in place, unless there's some or serious organic limitation. Uh, you know, someone may be, you know, grossly overweight and be morbidly obese, where they really can't breathe well because the diaphragm is so compromised by this incredible weight or someone who's got a cardiovascular condition or has a pulmonary issue like severe emphysema and those kinds of things, then the person, a lot of these people end up under breathing. And under breathing, by the way, is a rare, relatively rare thing. The only way you can really under breathe is to abort the exhale enough 
so that you're breathing mostly in the dead airspace of your lungs. Not many people do that. Of course, the solution is to allow the exhale, and then you can take a breath. But as soon as you start aborting the breath, because you're in a hurry to get the breath, then what that will do is give you a sense that you can't get a deep breath if you need it, because you, you know, you're aborting before you've you exhaled all the air, and now you're constantly there worried about getting enough air, can't get a deep breath, air hunger comes into the picture, and you struggle and struggle day after day, and life is a nightmare. And all you really had to do is just to allow the air out. So you do come across that, but it's not a common kind of thing. Like a lot of people will confuse breath holding with underbreathing. They'll say, they'll see someone holding their breath, and they'll say, breathe. You're not breathing. Breathe. Breathe. As if somehow they're hurting themselves by holding their breath. You, you're not going to hurt yourself holding your breath. This is nonsense. This is utter nonsense. I'm a, I hold my breath for five seconds. So what's that going to do to me? Nothing. If anything, it's going to elevate. Maybe it could, if I were lucky, it might elevate my CO2 a little bit. Probably not. So, you know, what it, what it means when someone's holding their breath is that they're controlling it. That's what it means. It means they're controlling it, which then becomes an indication that that person may be taking charge of their breathing a lot in their lives and creating a dysfunctional breathing situation where they may overventilate. This is for me, it's a, it's a sign. It's not, there's nothing wrong with breath holding by itself. It's just breath holding. That's what it is. Not bad or good, unless you hold your breath for three minutes. Right. You know, and even then, I mean, is it bad for you? I mean, a lot of people do that because that's part of their professional work, you know, uh, and they wouldn't say it was bad for them. So um, it, it's it's very interesting how people focus on breath holding as underbreathing. It's not right. underbreathing. So, Dr. Lisfield, earlier we spoke a little bit, or you spoke a little bit about um, breathing through your nose and into your diaphragm. And it seems as though today we've kind of been breaking a lot of common myths. So, I'm curious your thoughts on you know, putting into quotations, the, na the nasal to diaphragm connection being good and the mouth into chest being ultimately bad, which is how it's sometimes put into the world. And I'm curious what your perspective is okay, on that. Okay, well, I mean, I have a lot of perspectives on that. Um, first, first of all, um, you know, there are what we call breathing muscles and there are accessory breathing muscles that we use uh, in, as athletes and things like that. You know, you use many muscles uh, in doing the breathing process. And um, some of those muscles are in the upper body. Uh, and so you may use muscles in the neck or muscles in the back or muscles in the chest. And, and, and they may be helpful in terms of what you're doing. But uh, so, and so we call that chest breathing. But, and chest breathing is, quote, bad. But obviously, it's not. I mean, obviously, we use always muscles lots of times while we're breathing for various purposes. Okay, it's when you use those muscles in a way that compromises, say, diaphragmatic control. Because those reflexes I've been referring to operate through the diaphragm and through the external intercostal muscles. That's how they work. Through those muscles. So if you compromise them by dominating, you know, you're dominated by all these muscles in the upper body that you are implementing, 
not the reflexes. It's you who are using those muscles. The reflex is trying to work through the diaphragm and the external intercostals. And there could be a conflict created in doing that. And then when you breathe in the chest, for some people, they start to get air hunger. And when they get air hunger, they take over everything. And when they take over everything, then those reflexes can't operate. And they end up overventilating and they get all kinds of symptoms that they blame on other things. So, you know, breathing in the upper body can trigger air hunger. It can make breathing seem like a struggle. But there's nothing wrong with that, really. If you don't feel like breathing is a struggle, a lot of people breathe in the chest, they don't feel like it's a struggle. They don't get air hunger. They don't become hypocapnic. They don't lose CO2. And they're breathing up here. Fine. What's wrong with it? Nothing. What's wrong with it? They have good respiration. They're comfortable. They're relaxed. You say, well, but they're using all these muscles that they don't need to use. They, they, you don't have to use those, all those muscles to breathe with. Yeah. And what? And so what? You know, I walk fast. I'm a fast walker. What? Is that bad? Should I slow down and just kind of take it easy as I go along? Because it's too much exercise. Like right now, hey, Peter, you don't need to move your arms all over the place and, you know, emotionalize like you are. You could just really relax and kind of take it easy and that would be much better for you. No, it wouldn't be better for me. I'm not creative when I do that. I get creative when I do this. So, this, is, this is my process of accessing myself. Okay, so someone is breathing up here. Who gives a damn if it's not compromising them in any way? Now, if it's compromising them, then there's an issue that we could work with that person on. So maybe they can learn to breathe up here where it isn't compromising them because they like it up here. There are a lot of people who love to be in the chest and they hate the diaphragm. I have hundreds of people I've had. This one woman, just the other day, this woman said to me, oh, I love to breathe in the chest. I said, well, why? She says, I feel oh, free. I feel free. I said, well, what about the diaphragm? Says, I feel like I'm, a, I'm locked up. It's like a prison. Well, she's never going to breathe in the diaphragm. Ever. You want to get her in the diaphragm, you're going to have to work with her psychologically about preferring to be in the diaphragm rather than the chest. Now she said, well, what's she said to me? Well, what's wrong with breathing in my chest? I'm fine. I said, you don't, you don't have any, you haven't said that you had any kind of breathing issue. She says, no, I have no breathing issue. I feel great. I mean, there's no issue. Right. Okay. Now the, the, the nose and the mouth is a different story because breathing through the nose is very important for all kinds of physical reasons. Like it's really the only genuine filter that we have for air. It's a very, very serious filtering device. There's lots of reasons why breathing through the nose is a very good thing to do. But from a respiratory point of view, it doesn't make a damn bit of difference whether you breathe through your nose or your mouth. I mean, from a CO2 perspective, it doesn't make any difference because it, it regulates, the system regulates on based on CO2 concentration. It doesn't regulate CO2 concentration based on your nose. 
if you can't breathe through your nose, you breathe through your mouth. And we, it's comfortable to do that under many circumstances. We do it. It's helpful. You get a bad cold, you know, whatever it is, you breathe through your mouth. You know, you do it when you have to do it. And But from a respiratory point of view, breathing through the mouth is not going to cause, like a lot of people believe, over-breathing. Like breathe through the mouth, you're going to over-breathe. Wrong. Hmm. That's simply wrong. These people have never monitored CO2. A lot of people who have serious problems over breathing are breathing through their nose. And when you ask them to breathe through their mouth, the CO2 goes back to normal. I see that over and over again. They normalize their CO2 level when they go into their mouth. Why? Because of the psychological nature of breathing. When they breathe through their mouth, it's a relief. Hmm. Oh, I'm getting enough air. The air hunger goes away. There's no resistance breathing through the mouth. The air hunger goes away. They forget the breathing. They turn their attention to something else. The CO2 level comes nicely up. You move them into their nose. They're struggling. They worry about getting enough air. And you find them that they're overventilating. So it's the psych, you know, breathing is a psychophysiological happening. You cannot understand why someone's breathing the way they are unless you look at not only the the straight physicality of it, but you look at the psychology of it. If you don't look at the psychology of it, you're not going to understand it. So there's quite a bit of research that I've seen around benefits to, well, two reasons for nasal breathing. Um, one, for breathing down into the diaphragm, the greater percentage of oxygen exchange. Two, breathing through your nose being beneficial for increasing percentage of deep sleep relative to total sleep. Are you familiar with that research? Have you seen it? And, and what are your thoughts on it? Well, see, those are those are very superficial things, um, kind of conclusions about things. You see, um, you know, when you look at say uh, sleep apnea and nasal breathing and mouth breathing, yeah, I mean, one of the things people do is they put tape over the mouths of people who have apnea uh, and force them to breathe through the mouth. Um, excuse me, force them to breathe through the nose. Yeah, put the tape over the mouth, and that helps a lot. So the idea is to teach people uh, to breathe through the nose, but that but that they do it while they're sleeping, of course. But what research shows is that uh, people who overventilate during the day are more likely to suffer with central sleep apnea than other people. I mean, those are, these are correlational findings. There's not a cause and effect here. It's so important to understand. And then the other thing that you were mentioning um, about, you're talking about oxygen and, and through the nose. And I mean, why does that even matter? You, you, you had this conclu conclusion. Yeah. Rest I mean, rest you're, right? you're, all, you're already breathing perfectly if you allow the system to do its job. What, what more, what has to be optimized? I mean, the hemoglobin is already. 98% saturated, and that carries most of the most of the oxygen to the system. What what is it that makes any difference? I mean, how would that make any difference to the average person? Nothing. So I think the argument is the efficiency of oxygen exchange decreases the the number of breaths per minute. So if someone can breathe, you know, five that to six times a minute, it doesn't make any sense. No, no, it just doesn't make any sense. 
What does it mean? Even, even, you know, the whole idea that, um, you know, reducing, well, a number of things, like reducing the uh, breaths per minute. You can reduce the breaths per minute. You can reduce the breaths per minute anyway. Anybody can. And, and furthermore, why would you want to do that? For what? Well, as you just said, like breathing, um, so not over-breathing, the opposite of over-breathing, right? So allowing yourself to breathe, you know, less often so your the respiration rate is less because the, the exchange of oxygen in the lower lobes of the lungs is speculatively more efficient. But you don't, but you don't need more efficiency. You're already efficient. What do you need more efficiency for? You know, and it, the fact is that it's more efficient to take bigger, uh, smaller number of breaths uh, that are larger than uh, a large number of breaths that are much smaller. The efficiency, uh, you know, you look at the alveolar ventilation equation, and it's more efficient. And so what? It doesn't mean you're getting less oxygen, it just means that someone might be breathing 18 breaths per minute and someone else is breathing at eight breaths per minute. And so what? Oh, interesting. So you don't see it. You don't see a, a benefit to breathing eight times a minute over eight, as long as no. you're, you're, as long as your right. pH is in the right range. Right. As long as you're, you know, if you got good respiration, what more do you want? I mean, if you are looking at something different than respiration, then tell me what it is. Got it. That's interesting. So I, I, I was drawing a correlation there between number of times you're breathing per minute and you know ultimately respiration efficiency so those so the so but when you talk about efficiency i mean i'm not running a track i'm walking to the grocery store and i'm doing the things i do go out to dinner with you you know we do what we're doing go for a hike whatever it is i mean i've got all the oxygen i need right but my my community is all high performance right it's all people right. looking to optimize. So when you go to when you go to a high performance level you see, you have, you're limited by the, the, the cardiovascular end of things and how much blood you can move because the, the breathing apparatus is always doing its job because, for, as I say, for every liter you can move of that blood, you can move 20 liters of air. And you don't want to move 20 liters of air because you'd be hypocapnic. You want to move one liter, you know, with each liter that you're moving, whatever number of liters you're moving. Um, and uh, the idea is, you know, to allow that system to do its job. Now, if you want to get more oxygen per milliliter of blood, you can do that because, you know, the hemoglobin itself is carrying 98.5% of the oxygen, okay? Only 1.5% is even carried in the, in the plasma. So most of it's carried there. And the only way you can get hemoglobin to carry more is to be hypercapnic. And you don't want to be hypercapnic. That is going to throw off your performance capacity radically. You don't want to be hypercapnic. You want to leave it at 98%, the, the saturation level. As I say, the only way you could get bigger is to be in a hyperbaric chamber, breathe pure oxygen, or to overventilate. Those are the only three ways you can do it. Okay? Now, you can get more oxygen into the plasma if you overventilate. Why? Because there's less carbon dioxide in the lungs. You have more room for oxygen. You can get more oxygen into the plasma. The hemoglobin will carry a tiny bit more oxygen, or it will go up to 100% from 
you could do that, but then you have a tremendous cost to it. If you're hypocapnic, you don't want to pay that price. Now, at high elevation, it's another story. If you're at high elevation and you're climbing, you know, you're in the Andes and you're climbing 20,000 foot mountains, or you're in, you know, somewhere else with, you know, the Everest Mountains in Tibet or something like that, then you're going to have to overventilate. You're going to have to be hypocapnic or you'll pass out. Because what happens is that when you get to high elevation and you dump out carbon dioxide, the hemoglobin will pick up more oxygen than it would normally. And it, it will carry more oxygen in the system to provide you so you don't faint and pass out. You're still going to pay the price of hypocapnia, though. You're going to pay the price, but you're going to stay conscious. So you have to do that. You, you, you just wouldn't be able to get up the mountain otherwise. Dr. Lacefield, you've provided so much information and, and broken down a lot of uh, myths. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful for you and the information you provide and the, the research you continue to do. Um, could you tell our audience where we can find more from you? And I, I think you, you do sell a capnography machine that may be useful for some of our audience members if you want to share with that as well. Well, just to, to guide you into some of the work that we do is that there's an article, my most recent article just came out uh, in the Journal of Holistic Healthcare and Integrative Medicine is the name of the journal, the Journal of Holistic Healthcare and Integrative Medicine. It's a medical journal published in the UK, and it just came out just a couple of weeks ago that you can go to. Uh, it's volume 19, uh, issue two, summer. 2022. And it, it summarizes a lot of the things that we talked about. You can go there. I basically head up a school called the Professional School of Behavioral Health Sciences. And we've been offering the master's degree in breathing science for many years. And we, we have a certification program there We are in, in breathing behavior analysis. We have a professional certificate program in breathing behavior analysis. And we have a professional diploma program in breathing science as well. Uh, you can go look that up. That's at the website, which is very simple. It's just two letters, BP. That's like breathing physiology, if you will, BP dot edu. BP, breathing physiology or psychology, whatever you want to call it, dot edu. And then the other organization that I head up is um, called Better Physiology. And we manufacture um, a capnometer for measuring carbon dioxide levels. And we've just come out with one that you can wear. And it's silent. And you can work it on your cell phone. You can work it on an iPhone. You can work it on an iPad. You can work it in all kinds of different places. It's very small. You can wear it. Uh, that we just came out with. Uh, we've been doing, uh, we've been producing capnometers for 22 years, but this is a brand new one. It's a very sharp looking, very small, quiet Bluetooth device. And you can also do HRV, heart rate variability with it. You can buy yourself a polar belt and integrate it into our software uh, with the capnometer. If you're interested in that, you can go to betterphysiology.com. And the new, the new instrument hasn't been announced on there, but you'll see the newest one is on there, but the very newest one is coming out in October. You can go to that, betterphysiology.com. Well, good thing I, good thing you said that. I was literally on there yesterday about to purchase it, but I'll wait till October if that's the case, if the, if the newer one's coming in. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah. Again, Dr. Lichfield, thank you once again. I'm so grateful for your time and your wisdom and keep doing what you do. We appreciate you. Thank you very much for having me. And I look forward to meeting you again. Love to. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for joining me on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. One final shout out for our sponsor, magbreakthrough.com slash muscle intelligence. Don't forget to take your magnesium, ladies and gents. Personally, I'm taking between six and 1200 milligrams every single day. And when I neglected it because I was on my trip, I just didn't feel the same. My body woke up feeling tight, feeling you know, more stressed psychologically. And now I feel like I'm back to myself. My focus has improved. My energy is improved. My ability to execute my day-to-day tasks is massively improved. Common symptoms of lack of magnesium might be lack of energy, right? Due to poor sleep, due to the nervous system, never really calming down. It's very important to have deep, restful sleep. And sometimes the nervous system doesn't allow you to do that. So all it takes is a simple glass of water. For me, it's usually post-workout and before bed. um, and absolutely improves my recoverability and the way I feel day to day. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for Dr. Peter Litchfield for being here. As an, he's an incredible expert. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, do that now on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else amazing podcasts are played, as well as don't forget to leave us a review if you have anything you want to talk to us about. If you're not already a member of the Muscle Intelligence Facebook community, we are growing that. We're bringing more research, more amazing assets and value every day. Thanks for being here, ladies and gents. Have a great day. Ben Pekulski out. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pekulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.